I want to encourage people uh, with some information here that can be a little bit disturbing. And the disturbing fact is that most of the seed production in the world today is controlled by three companies. These companies used to be six companies a short while ago, but last year, Bayer Corporation bought out Monsanto and they bought out BASF. DuPont and Dow AgriSciences were purchased by, uh, uh, well, actually combined and formed a company called Corteva. And Kim China bought out the other large seed company, Syngenta. So we have today Corteva, Chem China, and the largest by far is Bayer Company that controls about 90% of the seed production in America and throughout the world today. Now, when I'm talking about a seed company, what I'm talking about is a company that actually produces seeds, not just companies that sell seeds. Many of you have uh, probably gotten mail order catalogs from a variety of different sources, Peaceful Valley Farm Supply, uh, Harris Seed Company, Johnny's Seed Company. These are marketing companies. They're not actually seed producers. And the marketing companies are at the discretion of what the seed producing companies choose to produce for what they have to market. So in many ways, the fact that these companies are only three companies, and when you buy your seed packet, it doesn't say Corteva or Bear or or uh, uh, Chem China on it. It says, uh, you know, has, has some other name on it. But the seed produced inside that packet has roots that uh, lead back to a consolidated group uh, that consists of those three companies. <clears throat> this chart here shows the consolidation that has taken place within the seed industry from 1996 to 2018. I know you can't see this real clearly, but the point I'm trying to make with this is that each of those little uh, bubbles is, was a seed producing company that was bought out by another seed producing company, and all these links lead back to those three giants that I was showing you just a moment ago. Those three giants have a vested interest in one thing and one thing only has nothing to do with nutrition, has nothing to do with providing you with the varieties of seeds that you would like to grow, has everything to do with satisfying shareholders and profit. And for that reason, they are influencing the production of seed in a way that is depriving us of more and more potentially good varieties for home gardeners and concentrating more and more on varieties that are geared towards uh, mainstream commercial agriculture. And mainstream commercial agriculture, likewise, is concerned about one thing and one thing only, and it has nothing to do with taste or nutrition or uh, the, the, the palatability of their product. It has to do with yield. And as a consequence, because of the nature of the characteristics that these seed companies are breeding for these days, the nutritional value of most of our foods is plummeting dramatically. I've done some seminars previously on that topic, and if you'd like to look at some of the past Ad Agra uh, uh, sessions and uh, listen to some of the audio that the wonderful folks at Audioverse have recorded for us, uh, you'll find uh, some of that information available to you there. I'm not going to dwell on that today. My point is that our choices are becoming more and more limited. And this doesn't, I'm not just concerned here about the 
the GMO seeds. I'm not just concerned about hybrid seeds, but I'm also concerned about open pollinated seeds because those large seed companies control most of the seed stock and many of the producers involved in replicating that open pollinated seed too. And there's a risk, and it's been manifest a few times in the last few years, of even open pollinated varieties that were once available to us uh, going extinct, commercially speaking. They're no longer available to us, which is an added incentive for us to produce seed ourselves and to hold on to those varieties. Don't take for granted that just uh, because it's an old open pollinated variety that was available last year that it's going to be available next year too. Because once these large companies make a marketing decision to go in one direction rather than in the direction that would, would provide you with the seed you want, they're not contracting with growers anymore to produce that seed, and that seed line goes extinct. Extinct. What does that mean? That means no more available, not just next year, but forever. In reality, do you know that 90%, 90% of the vegetables that were grown at the turn of the last century are now extinct? We have a very, very limited gene pool today with which to work in developing new varieties and new uh, characteristics of plants, and very few of those are open-pollinated varieties. <clears throat> now, do you all know what I mean by an open-pollinated variety? I think we need some discussion on this. And let me first say that when it comes to buying our seed, I'm getting a little ahead of myself here, it's very important that you buy seed from a commercial grower's supplier, not someone that is marketing mail order in packets, not the seed rack down at the local nursery or the hardware store. And part of the reason for that is that seeds have varying degrees of quality that you can't necessarily see, but are very present within the seed. Seeds are graded, and the best quality seed has the highest density. If you have a seed of a similar size and one weighs more than another, that extra weight is extra energy within that seed that is gonna to lead to a better quality plant. And as home gardeners, we can't discern that difference. But when that seed is being processed and cleaned by the company that's gonna market it to you, they actually separate these seeds by that characteristic, by its specific gravity. And the, the poor quality seed has a lower specific gravity, and that ends up in a little tiny envelope with a really pretty picture on it with some instructions for how you are going to plant it and market it as a mass consumer item. The higher quality seed is sown to commercial growers, in part because if you're a commercial grower and you know what you're doing with the seed, you're going to have... Uh, the capacity to discern whether that seed has a good quality or not based on its germination rate, based on the characteristics and the quality of the seedling that is produced from that seed. Whereas a homeowner, on the other hand, with a packet of lousy seed, doesn't know when he's planted that whether it's his fault or the seed's fault. And he usually blames himself. So buy from a commercial grower's supplier. And by a commercial grower, what I'm referring to are typically mail order companies. There's a list of them on my website, uh, bereagardens.org, if you want to find some of the, the seed companies that provide good quality seed to commercial growers. Don't buy your seed at the hardware store. 
I was talking with a young man yesterday who grew a field of sunflowers uh, from seed that he had saved, and uh, he had very poor results, and part of the reason he had poor results was because he bought his seed uh, at a local farm co-op in, in bulk and didn't really realize the variation in quality in seed. <clears throat> uh, the other thing I want to mention here is I always plant multiple varieties of the same crop in my fields. If I plant lettuce, I plant five to seven different varieties of lettuce. If I plant broccoli, I'm planting four or five different varieties of broccoli, and I do this with every crop I grow. And this is partly for food security, because one year you may find that one specific variety of seed performs very well. The next year, uh, one of the other seeds that didn't do so well that first year may outperform it. It just is a variation in uh, the nature of our dynamic system in which our crops grow. <coughs> we have varying weather conditions, varying pest pressures, varying disease pressures, and uh, it simply makes sense not to put all of your genetic seed, genetic seed in one basket, so to speak, so grow a multiple of varieties. And I grow a combination of both open pollinated and hybrid varieties. And I want to talk about this a little bit because there's actually quite a bit of prejudice among some traditional and organic growers that hybrid varieties are not something that we should be growing. <clears throat> I want to explain this to you and talk to you a little bit about this because there's absolutely no justifiable reason why uh, on this day we, we can't make use of some hybrid seeds too for very good reasons. And the other thing I want to suggest to you is that you order your seeds now. I'm going to talk later in this presentation about how to store your seeds, uh, uh, even for long periods of time. And I think it's important that while we still have some of these wonderful varieties available to us, that we need to take advantage of that and get our seed stocks now. Uh, in the course of the last 10 years, there have been no less than uh, 15 varieties of seed that I used to grow, that I really liked, that I... Uh, um, uh, you know, found that were very well adapted to my location and my growing conditions, and all 15 of those are no longer available commercially. And this list is growing very rapidly, just as you saw the consolidation of all those seed companies taking place very rapidly. The introduction of new varieties is, is steady, but it's not keeping up with the list of varieties that are being dropped off of their lists on an annual basis. You may find this true uh, this year when you go to order your seeds to discover that what was uh, uh, working for you over the last few years may no longer be available. So order them now. I want to talk a little bit about the difference between an open pollinated variety and a hybrid variety. <clears throat> now most of our heirloom seeds or heritage seeds are simply open pollinated varieties. Those are marketing terms for an open pollinated variety. And what is an open pollinated variety? Well, plants produce seed because that's the sexual means for a plant's reproduction. And by sexual, what I mean is there's two parts necessary to produce a seed. We have a female part, which is the ovum or the egg, and that's inside the pistil of the flower, at the lower part of the flower there. The male portion of the, of the uh, seed-producing process is the pollen, which is a, a produced on the stamens and the anthers around that pistil. In an open pollinated variety of plant, we have 
a population of plants that is essentially genetically identical. Each of these flowers here are all genetically very, very similar. They're not exactly identical, but they're very, very similar. And when pollen from one of these, any one of these flowers, <clears throat> I'm sorry, fertilizes the egg in the other flower, or if the flower pollinates itself, that the characteristics of the offspring of that uh, cross will be very, very consistent, almost genetically identical to its parent. In an open pollinated variety, we have a different circumstance. <clears throat> I'm sorry, in a hybrid variety, we have a different circumstance. In a hybrid variety, we have a plant of similar species. Now, this is what distinguishes hybrid uh, 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 cross-pollination versus genetic modification. It has to be the same species. We're not crossing uh, aardvarks with, uh, uh, with avocados here. Uh, we take parents of the same species that have different characteristics. And the hybrid process is an attempt to derive offspring that has uh, enhanced characteristics from the strength of both parents. In this case, we've got a seed parent that is a large pink flower and a pollen parent that has a smaller flower but bicolor petals. And perhaps our goal might be to achieve an offspring that has a large uh, flower shape with that bicolor characteristic. And in this process, pollen from the pollen parent fertilizes the pistil from the seed parent, and the, the, the first offspring of that cross is a combination of those two characters that expresses itself with the dominant genes, which in this case gives us a large flower with bicolor petals. Now, this is done in a couple of ways to ensure that the pollen parent fertilizes the seed parent and that the seed parent doesn't fertilize itself. It can be done a couple of ways. It can be done by hand, by cutting the stamens off of that seed parent so that only the pollen parent can fertilize it. And this is a traditional method used in corn breeding often, where uh, those of you from corn country have probably seen corn seed fields where they go through and they detassel the, the female rose or the seed parent rose and leave the tassels on the pollen parent plant so that the, the pollen from one uh, parent fertilizes the other parent and the other parent doesn't fertilize itself. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying here? The other way they accomplish this is by selecting a seed parent that is pollen sterile, meaning that the pollen on that seed parent plant will not fertilize that flower, it won't fertilize anything else. It's sterile pollen doesn't have any characteristics. So I put these two varieties in the field side by side, and I know that all of the seed parent flowers have been pollinated by the pollen parent plant. Do you follow me? Okay. Now, the reality is that this F1 offspring occurs all the time in nature. Do you know that there's not a single article of food that we eat today, not a single item that any of you can name, that any of you has ever consumed, that is anything like the food that was on this planet just a thousand years ago, or even, uh, or, or even a, a few hundred years ago. All plants, all of our seeds, nuts, fruits, grains, everything that we eat, vegetables, has undergone this process in nature over the course of time. 
well, if that's the case, how do we get these open pollinated varieties that reproduce true to type every year? The way that occurs is through a process, and this is a process I want to walk you through. First of all, I want to say that <clears throat> there's a lot of prejudice among some circles that we should only plant open pollinated varieties because they're more healthful, they're more pure in some spiritual sense because they're more like what was back in Eden. And I want to dispel that myth because that's not true at all, not even a little bit true. There are some reasons to avoid hybrid seed, but you better know what they are, and that's why I want to share this with you today. If we take the offspring of that first hybrid cross, the F1, that stands for first filial or first family relationship, and we allow it to self-pollinate or pollinate itself to come to the F2 generation, the outcome is an unknown outcome, meaning that that plant can be better than the F1 in some characteristics. It can be worse than the F1 in some characteristics. We don't know what we're going to get. And this is the reason why most of us don't save seed from F1 hybrids and plant them the next year because we don't really know what we're going to get. It could be better, it could be worse. It, it, it's possible, too, that, that we won't get seed because that recessive gene for pollen sterility in the, in the female uh, 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 egg parent uh, may kick in, too, and it may not pollinate itself at all. But if we then self-pollinate that F2 generation, we'll go to the F3 generation with a plant, again, with very dissimilar characteristics from its F1 uh, uh, parent back at the original cross. But something really interesting happens in this process as we get down to the F6 and F7 generations of this self fertilization of the hybrid offspring, the genetic characteristics that are dominant start to stabilize. And by the F7 generation, we have a now a new variety of an open pollinated parent that will reproduce true to type. And this is the case with virtually all of our heirloom and heritage and open pollinated seeds today. All of them, at some point in their background, had a period of hybridization involved. So there is no essential virtue in staying with open pollinated varieties with one exception of characteristic, and that is that it will reproduce true to type. Do you follow me? Anybody surprised by that? Okay. You're a pretty, a pretty intelligent group here. You've studied this issue a little bit. The reasons for why that initial uh, original hybrid took place are usually considerations for disease resistance, for climate adaptability, whether it's resistant to drought or resistant to, to wet conditions, or it can be for yield. All of those characteristics are typically things that we care about as home gardeners, too. We want something that's going to yield well. We want something that is adaptable well to our circumstances and conditions. And we want something that's going to have resistance 
to pests and disease, especially if we're trying to grow organically. And unfortunately, many of the traditional organic uh, 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 growers rely on some of the heirloom seeds that are open pollinated varieties that have very poor disease and insect resistance. And for those of you that are convicted that you need to plant only open pollinated varieties, I want to put this question to you. I grow a variety of open pollinated tomato called Rutgers. It's been around for a long time. It's a great tomato for canning. It's got really good flavor. But it's very susceptible to late blight. And I also grow a hybrid variety called Celebrity. Now, Celebrity is a hybrid that is pretty resistant to, uh, uh, to Phytophthora, to late blight. And if I grow these two plants side by side in my wet, moist fields in West Virginia, I'm going to find that in the middle of July, when the nighttime temperatures are up around 80 degrees and the humidity is staying at 70 to 80 percent, that Rutgers tomato uh, is going to become badly infested with late blight and in some instances produce very few tomatoes. Whereas the celebrity that has resistance to late blight will perform quite well and I'll, I'll be able to harvest a number of fruits. And even if it's true, and I'm not saying that it is, but even if it is true that the open pollinated variety is more nutritious, if I'm only getting one, potato, one tomato off of that plant in, in, in place of maybe 20 pounds off of the hybrid plant, which one am I really getting more nutrition from? So there's value in using hybrid seed appropriately and for the right reasons and in selecting for the right reasons. So I strongly suggest that we plant both a mix of hybrid and open pollinated varieties. Now the reason I plant most of the open pollinated varieties that I have has to do with the fact that if I save that hybrid seed and plant it the next year, I don't really know what I'm going to get. But I think, too, there's an opportunity there for us to do a lot of research and discovery in developing new varieties. I have done this. I just don't rely on it for my food supply. And we have a, a variety of uh, squash that we have come to really enjoy. It's a variety of kabocha squash called Sunshine that is a, a, a hybrid variety. I have to buy the seed every year. And the seed's kind of expensive, so I've been experimenting a little bit with that over the years. <coughs> to see what will happen after seven generations of selfing and see if I can get some of those same uh, flavor characteristics. It's really flavorful. That's one of the things I like about it. Uh, to see if I can carry that through to an open pollinated variety so they don't have to spend so much and buy that seed every year. And at about the F3 generation, it looks very different than its parent. It's a green squash instead of an orange squash. Uh, it's still the same shape. In some instances with squash varieties, they'll even change shape on you. Uh, but it is not something that's more desirable than the, the hybrid yet, but I've got a few more generations to go before I, that thing settles out in the F7 generation to determine whether or not I've got a new squash variety that will be useful to me or not. So there's room for experimenting with hybrid seeds, but you don't want to rely on hybrid seeds for your food security. That's where we do need to rely on the open pollinated varieties. So I just suggest this to you as something that you want to uh, you know, you want to, uh, uh, might want to consider in terms of, of uh, doing some experimenting in your gardens. <clears throat> when it comes to saving our seed, 
the first thing that is important is that we need to dedicate strong, healthy plants for seed production. Now, what is a seed? A seed is basically a little capsule of energy. And that capsule of energy needs to be really strong and have lots of energy stored in it if it's going to perform well for us and produce good plants. If we wait and simply harvest parts of, we'll use a lettuce crop, for example, if you're uh, you know, pulling leaves off of your lettuce or leaves off of your kale plant, that's probably a more likely circumstance. And then after that plant gets all stressed out and all the energy's gone and it bolts and starts to produce seed, that's not a good candidate for seed production. And unfortunately, that's what a lot of home gardeners do. They just wait and when they, uh, you know, they, they've, they've harvested what they want and when the flower bolts, the plant bolts and they can't eat any more of it, then they leave the rest of it to save their seed from. That's a really, really, really bad idea. And the reason for that is the, the, the plant's energy you've consumed and the plant available energy for that seed is really, really minimal. So you get really lousy, really poor quality seed from a practice like that. So I strongly suggest that you dedicate plants in your garden for producing seed and that you take care of those plants uh, as diligently or even more diligently than you do the rest of your crop. Make sure that it's got plenty of plant nutrition. Make sure it doesn't go through moisture stress. You know, out west, when I worked with seed companies that were producing vegetable seed, uh, their cultural costs were har far higher than the costs of the people that were growing spinach, for example, for marketing versus spinach that was grown for seed production. For that reason, you wanted to pr pr produce a really good quality plant with lots of seed. You also want to uh, select seeds that have no virus or select a plant that has no indication of virus symptoms at all, uh, no indications of disease, and some insect damage might be acceptable, but only minimal insect damage. <clears throat> now, typically, what I do is I select uh, shortly after planting, if I'm producing lettuce seed, for example, I uh, plant my, I talked earlier today about my block planting system, and I will try to select maybe, I, I, I don't need any more than four plants of a lettuce variety to produce all the seed that I need for five years. So I select four plants on one end of the block or the other that are strong and healthy, and I just leave them in place. I'll harvest the rest of the crop and leave them in place and tend them for a period of time uh, and that way, I don't interrupt all of, my, uh, all of my other crop rotations or my cultivation practices. I don't plant plants specifically for seed uh, very often. I simply use blocks of crops that I've already planted for commercial use, and I just leave the seed-bearing or seed-producing plants there for a much longer period of time. The other thing is that we need to be sure if we have multiple crops growing, and this is the case for most of us with small market farms or, or home gardeners, we're diversified in what we grow, we have to have a form of secure isolation so that we don't inadvertently create our own hybrid. And there are two ways to isolate things. One is by distance and the other is by time. 
And on our small farms and in your backyard gardens, uh, distance can kind of be a challenge. And my preferred method for separating crops so that they don't cross-pollinate and they don't produce inadvertent hybrids is to use time. Now, I grow, as I said earlier, multiple varieties of the same crop. So if I'm growing a lettuce crop for seed, am I going to have a problem if I have, you know, if, if I've got in that one greenhouse where I'm saving a variety for seed, am I going to have a problem if I grow six or eight different varieties of lettuce in there? Am I, will, will I have a problem? I'm seeing some heads nod yes. Okay, why would I have a problem with that? I plant them all at the same time. It's not going to create a problem for me because I'm going to harvest all those other crops long before they produce flowers and are susceptible to cross-pollination. Correct? Okay. Now, different circumstance, if I need two varieties of lettuce seed and I try to do that in the same greenhouse, am I going to have a problem if I do that at the same time? Yes, I will. So in that circumstance, what I'll typically do is I'll grow one variety in the spring and one in the fall for seed production and still not interrupting my production pattern with what I'm doing. So I use time that way. I'm growing three different varieties, or I plan to grow three different varieties of corn this year. I have the two varieties of field corn I'm going to grow. Actually, I'll be growing four because we like a little sweet corn too. But I have two varieties of field corn, a variety of sweet corn, and a, and a popcorn that I want to grow this year. And my farm is only, uh, you know, a couple of acres. It's maybe a little over a quarter of a mile from one end of my planting area to the other. And with the winds that we get, I can't be secure that distance is going to be enough, uh, to enough protection to keep pollen from moving that far. We get 60, 70 mile an hour winds sometimes during thunderstorms during the period of pollination. So what I have to do then is stagger my planting so that they're not all in tassel at the same time, so that they, they have viable pollen at different periods of time through the growing season to isolate that particular variety. <clears throat> the other common mistake that people make is that they harvest seed long before it's mature. We need to ensure full seed maturity before we harvest the seed. This is the most common mistake that I, I, I see people make, even if they're harvesting the puny little seed off of their kale plant that they've already stripped two pounds of kale off of, and the seeds are small and have no energy in them. But the other mistake that's made is it's not fully ripened. In the case of lettuce, for example, it takes about three times as long to produce seed as it does to produce a head of lettuce. So it's going to sit in the garden for a much longer period of time, for one thing. And we have to let that plant fully ripen and let that seed fully ripen to the point where the plant starts to die back. The seed panicle or the pods that the lettuce seed are in actually start to split open on their own. And when about 10% of those pods split open, that's when we know that we've got the right ripening of our seed to harvest it and ensure that it's fully developed and fully mature. Same thing holds true for uh, for fruits that we harvest. With our veggies, we want to make sure that about 10% of those pods are popped open. And with fruits, we want them to ripen far past the period of time where they would be edible. 
with tomatoes, for example. I allow them to stay on the vine until the tomato actually starts to ferment a little bit on the vine, or maybe even the tomato will fall off the vine. Now, fruits are a little bit different in, in, in the sense that we don't need to dedicate an entire plant to produce tomatoes seed, for example. Uh, but I still want to follow the same criteria as far as making sure I've got a really good, healthy plant, that I select a fruit for the seed production that I need that is uniform, that is of good quality, that is, uh, you know, one of the stronger fruits on the plant. And usually at that point, what I'll do is I'll tie a little ribbon or something around that fruit so nobody comes along and picks it and eats it before the seed's produced. And I tend to keep the, the other fruit on the plant that I am harvesting at a minimum, meaning that we harvest vigorously and we even discard some of the green fruit on that plant so the, the plant isn't bearing a huge load of fruit uh, that creates stress on the plant. A lot of an extra energy goes into that seed. Does that make sense? So uh, the idea here is that you want to select fruits that are very strong and viable, but you don't need to designate a plant uh, just for your seed production. I get plenty of seeds out of a couple of tomatoes. Uh, I don't need a couple of tomato plants to produce all the seed that I need. And these things need to get really ripe. With melons, you want to wait until the melons are, are actually splitting open in the field. Uh, with cucumbers or squash or something like that, uh, they're going to be far past the point where you'd want to eat them. I usually wait until they get pithy. With my uh, zucchini that I save for seed, for example, they're usually the size of baseball bats or bigger. And although seed will germinate at a younger stage, it's far more viable and far more uh, uh, likely to give you a good strong plant if it is fully mature. In collecting seed, the way we go about it with most of our vegetables, and I'll use lettuce as an example, is we've harvested now all of the lettuce that was in that bed. It's probably replanted with another crop, maybe even a third crop by the time we harvest the seed. The lettuce plant itself will now have a large flowering stock on it that has self-pollinated seeds within the pods that are on that stock. The lettuce plant itself will start to die back. It'll start to turn brown. When the leaves start turning brown, stop watering it. All you're going to do is encourage fungal disease in the root system if you continue to water it, because it's done its job. It's gone through its life cycle. It's produced seed. Now the plant is dying back, and the seeds are there continuing to ripen. And when about 10% of the pods have started to split open, it's time to harvest that seed. And what I do when I harvest seed is I go out to the garden with a large plastic bag. We use food bags uh, for a lot of the other pro processes on our farm. So I just use a clear plastic food bag that's about the size of a 30-gallon trash can bag. But a trash can bag would work all right, too, uh, for this. And I put the trash bag over that whole seed panicle, and I grab it by the base, and I cut the panicle off. And I'll do that and carry it in, in, inside and... Uh, we typically then hang the panicle for a, a period of time to continue the drying process, let that thing dry out until it's crispy dry. Uh, and when I hang it up, I remove the plastic bag from it, and then we spread newsprint or something on the floor to collect any of the seed that might fall out of it while it's standing there and drying. 
and it will let it to continue to dry inside until it's less than 12% moisture. And the way that I use to, you, you can use a moisture meter for this, but the way that I tell that it's 12% moisture or less is, is simply with my pocket knife. I have a nice sharp pocket knife, I put the seed down on a hard surface, I push my pocket knife into the seed, if it slices or crushes, it's still too green, it's still too wet, rather. If it pops apart, if it snaps apart, if it cleanly shatters, if it breaks, that's an indication that it's crispy dry and below that 12% threshold. At that point, I'll then thresh the seed. I put my plastic bag back around the seed panicle or a number of panicles if I'm doing more, and I just grab the top of it and I beat the panicle against the wall. We have concrete wall block buildings, so this works really good. I usually do this when I have a period of high frustration and anxiety, and I find that it's very, very soothing to do this. And just basically beat this thing up against the wall until I've knocked all of those seed pods off of the, uh, the stems. We pull the stems out of the bag, and what's left in the bag is chaff, uh, uh, some of the leaves and uh, some of the seed pods and all of the seed. And the seed is heavier than any of the rest of that, so we just use a simple box fan to clean our seed. And what I do is I take that mess that's inside the bag, I put it in a five-gallon bucket, I go outside to do this, <clears throat> and I set a box fan on the end of the table blowing that way, blowing across the table. And I set a five-gallon bucket down behind the box fan, and I have my five-gallon bucket full of all of the, the seed and debris. And in order to winnow it or to clean the seed, I simply slowly pour it from one bucket to the next. And using the suction side of the fan gives you real fine control about how much air is moving through the seed so that you are not blowing the seed away, too. You, the suction side works much more effectively than the blowing side of the fan uh, in this process because you can really regulate a lot more carefully how much seed is blowing away. And I'll slowly pour from one to the other. The chaff blows off first. I'll, I'll perhaps do it a second time and the, the seed pods, the parts that are a little heavier, blow away. And then I'll do it a third time when the seed is, is quite clean to the point where I blow about 10% of the seed through the fan. Why do I do that? Because that's all the lighter seed that's a poor quality that I don't really want to keep. Now, if I was in the seed business, I'd save that and I'd put it in a little packet and I'd put a pretty picture on the packet and I'd sell it to you. But I don't want that for my farm, so I'm going to waste about 10% of that seed to ensure that the quality that I have is, is really good quality. Okay. And that's uh, basically the way we handle all of our vegetable seeds. And with uh, uh, fruit seeds, it's a little different process. With fruit, again, we want to let this ripen fully. That's the key to a good quality seed. I'm going to select the fruit. I'm going to pick the fruit, if it's a cucumber or tomato or bell pepper, what have you. And I'm going to remove the seed from the fruit. And the seed still needs to dry. Uh, but before I can dry it, I need to clean it. And typically what I do with tomatoes, I'll use them as an example because they're the, the biggest nuisance in terms of cleaning seed. Uh, I have a, 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 a little screen. Most of you ladies have these in your kitchens. 
It's just a, a, a dome-shaped screen. And I'll take the seed and all of the flesh that's in there, and by letting it ripen full, fully, the flesh separates from the seed pretty easily. It's not like a, a fresh-picked tomato that we would use for eating, where it's really hard. That, that, uh, that fleshy material is really sticky on the seed. By the time it's a little bit fermented and, and aged and fully ripe, uh, that washes off pretty clear. So I put it in this little strainer, and I just lightly scrub it with my fingers underwater until I wash all of the fleshy part of that through the screen. Now, you don't want to do this too hard because seeds have a coating on them that is their protection. And sometimes, if you scratch that protection, that's a signal to the seed to germinate. So you've got to be a little bit careful and delicate about doing this because you don't want to scratch the seed, but you do want to get it thoroughly clean. Once I have it thoroughly clean, I usually just take a paper plate with a couple of uh, paper towels on it, and I spread the seed out on these paper towels and uh, uh, let the paper towel absorb the moisture that's there. Uh, the next day I will come back and I will transfer the seed onto another plate with a fresh paper towel because it's fairly dried now and just kind of spread it around on the paper towel and then I continue to let it dry in a dark place for another perhaps seven to ten days until that seed also meets that crack test so that I know that it's dry enough and ready to store. At that point, I'll put it in, uh, and, you know, in the case of, of squash seeds and pumpkin seeds, the center of the seed won't get that hard, but the shell or the, the seed cover will give you that cracking experience. The center part of the seed still stays pretty soft. Most of you, most of you know that. But you still have to get it dry enough to store so that it doesn't rot in storage. So at that point, once it's dried, once I've gone through that operation, I'll package it and it's uh, labeled and it's dated, which is important, and then it's ready to go into storage. <clears throat> now, many folks ask me, how long can I store my seeds? And uh, considering that we've done all of these things, we want our seed in a dark and dry environment, allow it to cure in that situation. Once we have it at less than 12%, separate it, clean it, package it, label it, date it. Then we need to consider how we're going to store it. Now, we often kind of think of seeds as being dead, but they're not really dead. There's enzyme activity taking place in seed all the time. There's little triggers in there that say, time to germinate? Nope, not time to germinate. Time to germinate? Nope, not time to germinate. And those triggers are moisture, light, and temperature. Moisture, as I said, should be dry. In terms of light, it should be in a dark place. Why is that? Because light actually triggers some seeds to germinate. Most of us don't think of that because when we plant seeds, we're putting them in the ground. Isn't it dark down there? Well, you'd think so, but I've got a challenge for you. And sometime this spring, put a little of your garden soil in a clear glass or a, a clear plastic cup, hold it up to the sunlight and look through it, and you'll see the light penetrates the soil to a depth of one to two inches, depending on the density of your soil. And lettuce won't germinate without a little bit of light. So having it in a totally dark environment is, is pretty important. 
um, the temperature needs to be a steady temperature because that's one of the triggers, too, that induces seed to germinate. And the, temper the, 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 the more of a flat line we can have in terms of moisture, you don't want it getting, gaining humidity and losing humidity, you don't want it uh, getting exposed to light and not exposed to light, and you don't want the temperature moving up and down a lot either. And the way that I store the seed that we use on my farm is actually in a chest freezer. I put the, the, the chest freezer's dark, for one, so I can put my seed in plastic bags with labels on it. So it provides the dark environment. It's a dry environment. The seeds are dry in, in containers that pretend, uh, prevent any moisture in that environment in plastic bags. And I usually use double freezer bags for my seeds. But the important thing is that the temperature stays really, really steady. It's not so much that it's cold, it's that it stays really steady all the time. And I suggest if you're going to use a freezer that you dedicate it to seed saving. Because if you try to use your typical home freezer for this, and if, especially if it's an upright freezer and you open and close the door of that freezer, you may not realize it because everything stays frozen inside, but all the cold air dumps out of that freezer and warm room temperature air, which may be 40 or 50 or even 60 degrees warmer rushes in, you get quite a cycle of temperature variation even within your freezer or your refrigerator. And another important reason not to store seeds in an environment like that is because foods that we buy and replenish give off ethylene gas as they age. And ethylene gas is deadly for seeds. It'll drop your germination uh, dramatically if they're exposed to even a few parts per million of ethylene gas. It's a plant hormone. And it prevents the seeds from germinating. So you don't want to store seed in the same refrigerator that you're uh, you know, that you're using for household use. Now, if you don't want to store it in a freezer, the freezing temperature isn't as important as the steady temperature, then you need to think of other places where you have nice, steady conditions of temperature uh, where you can store your seeds, where they're dark and where they're dry. And I have a friend that uh, stores his seed, actually, in five-gallon buckets that he buries in the ground. If he's not going to use the seed until the next growing season, he seals them in plastic bags when they're dry, and he puts a lid on a five-gallon bucket, and he buries it about two feet deep in the ground. Now, we do get some soil temperature variation, but it's much, much less uh, in the ground than it is in, say, a dark corner of a, of a garage or in your closet someplace. And uh, that's a way, too, of preserving the seed. If you manage it this way and you handle it this way, many seed varieties will last for 10 or 12 years. Uh, I just uh, uh, tossed out some seed last year that I uh, just, you know, it had finally kind of reached the end of its longevity. It still germinated at about 80%, but the, the quality of the plants was starting to suffer a little bit. And that lettuce seed I produced nine years ago. Uh, Bean seeds are, are seeds that are higher in protein uh, tend to lose their viability a little faster. And for that reason, I try to replenish my seed stocks about every three years. I don't need to do it every year, uh, but about every three years. And even for the hybrid varieties that I buy, because I told you some of these varieties are, are falling off the seed lists right and left, I try to keep about a three to five year supply of seed on hand all the time.
and I uh, uh, probably grow, um, in terms of the market crops that I grow, uh, about a third of them, maybe 30 to 33% of them are open pollinated varieties, the rest are hybrids, and uh, the variety of seeds that I have are enough to uh, uh, completely fulfill my diet. Even those varieties of uh, market crops that we grow, things like broccoli, I don't grow an open pollinated variety of broccoli for market because customers don't like it. It tastes the best and we like it, so we grow it. And I also grow it for seed uh, so that we have long-term food security for that period of time when you know, seeds may or may not be available to us. But there's no reason not to use hybrid varieties. There's no reason not to experiment with saving seed from hybrid varieties. And there's no particular virtue to open pollinated varieties apart from the fact that they will reproduce true to type and will give us a good, reliable, long-term source of food. Okay, I think uh, that's kind of covering the, the major points there. Uh, seed storage is something that you've kind of got to solve on your own. I've got a small market farm, and I've got a five-year supply of seed, and my freezer, I think, cost me $110. It was the smallest little chest freezer that you can get, and I've got a five-year supply of seed in there. So for me, that works out very well. If you've got a large uh, family garden or, uh, you know, an institutional garden or a market farm, that's, that's really a sensible solution. Uh, to, to long-term storage. <clears throat> now, I do open and close that a few times a year, but it's not like a, a freezer that I've got in daily use, so the temperature stays very steady in, in that situation. Okay. All right. Well, that's about all I've got to share with you. Do you folks have any questions? Yes. She says, if I'm doing succession planting, you're going to be opening, you know, your seed every couple of weeks. No, that's keeping it at a minimum. The thing to do is to open it, pull your seed out, and close it, and as soon as you're done you know, getting as much as you need, put the rest of it back in. But no, it's, it's the principle. Uh, you know, it's, it, it's not a perfect world. We can't have a perfect environment. But you want to minimize the opportunity for those temperatures to fluctuate. Yes, second question. She's asking what foods give off or potentially at potential exposure she has grain and fruits and other things. It, fried fruits. Dried fruits? Okay. It's primarily the fruits and vegetables that give off ethylene. And yes, even dried fruit will give off ethylene. I'm not so certain about the grains. That's a good question. I'll have to look into that because I don't know the answer to that. I suspect it's dominantly the fruits and vegetables that are problematic for that. Yes. Yes, sir. Well, how can I di uh, differentiate whether a plant has virus to determine whether or not to save that seed? Uh, there's a couple of ways, one of which is to get our DVD set because I tell you all about how to find virus. Uh, the other is to come to our training class. That's, you know, part of a plant pathology course that we offer. Uh, virus are actually fairly easy to identify because the symptoms are often the names of the virus. And if you go online and do a little research for virus-infected plants, you'll, you'll, you'll see uh, photographs and examples of virus. Typically, it causes a discoloring in the leaf uh, that's, that's quite profound and distinct and different from fungal diseases or from other types of leaf damage. 
and they're not that difficult to discern. But uh, just look up viruses and follow your way around. There's a number of different types, thousands actually, of different types of viruses. They're not real common, uh, but they do exist, especially on many of the cucurbit crops, the squash and the pumpkins. And you definitely don't want to save seed from a virus-infected plant because once a plant is infected with a virus, you must assume that every part of that plant has that virus in it, whether it's expressing itself or not. Just as, uh, you know, as a child, I had chicken pox. And if at this age I come under some extraordinary stress, I can develop shingles because that virus is still in my body. I don't have the chicken pox anymore, but I've still got the virus within me. So symptoms come and go in plants too. And sometimes they won't show the symptoms. But if you uh, observe the symptoms at any time during the growing season, that's a plant that you don't want to use for saving seed or your entire next generation will have that virus. Yes, sir? Can you hybridize open pollinated? Can I hybridize open pollinated? By definition, uh, can you use it as a parent in hybridization or can I take an open pollinated variety and take plant A and cross it with plant B? Yes. Uh, is that your question? No, because the original open pollinated variety, all of the individuals within that variety, let's say a Roma tomato, for example. Right. If I take a Roma tomato from your garden and from her garden and from his garden, uh, they're all going to be genetically identical or very closely to genetically identical. That's what the definition means. Uh, 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 the, the, the open pollinated variety is simply going to produce an offspring of the same variety because genetically the, the, the pollen and the, uh, uh, the egg have the same uh, DNA, the same chromosome. So that's what makes it a stable variety. But I can use an open pollinated variety and cross it with a different variety. I can take that Roma tomato and cross it with a Brandywine tomato and come, with, come up with, a, with a, another hybrid, yes. But then you have to wait seven generations for it to... You have to stabilize it over that six or seven generation period, like yes. second generation, there's no guarantee that it will continue... That's a really interesting point to make because I've done that in some circumstances where at the F3 or the F4 generation, you come up with something that's really exceptional. And the only way to get that again is to start at the beginning and go those three generations. In fact, there are a few vegetable crops on the market today that are F2 varieties, and the seed is expensive for that reason because they've got to grow the seed. It takes two years to, to develop the seed. But yes, that's, a, that's an interesting observation, one that I've seen. Yeah. Another question? Back here. How many different plants or varieties? Different plants. Uh, open pollinated, I typically use four plants. Uh, that gives, off, off of four lettuce plants, I've accumulated as much as three and a half gallons of seed. I, I, that's that nine-year-old seed I told you about. That was, that was that three and a half gallon bucket of seed that it took me that long to use. So you don't need uh, uh, quite a number of plants. If it's an open pollinated plant, there's no genetic diversity anyway. So that's not really an issue. And if you've taken the time to study the plant as it's growing to make sure that it doesn't have virus, that it's a vigorous plant, uh, you know, by the time I'm cutting uh, the lettuce around those plants, uh, it's, you know, 60 or 70 days old. And by then, if it's a weak plant or has defective 
uh, uh, genetic information, and it'll manifest itself at that time. And in that case, I just go ahead and cut that plant and leave the one that's next to it to produce seed that's healthy. Okay. Any other questions? Are all seedless grapes and watermelons hybrids? This is a really good point because a lot of people are shy of eating seedless fruits sometimes. Uh, the characteristic for producing seed is parthenocarpy. Carpy. That's, your, that's your $5 word for the day, parthenocarpy. There, are some, there is some work being done with genetically modifying some crops for the characteristic of not producing seed. But, but, I better say that louder. Uh, but most of, if not all, of the current seedless varieties of watermelons, of grapes, of other fruits are simply seeds that do not fully develop within the plant. Meaning that just as we selected a female seed sterile parent for our hybridization, we'll, we'll, we'll select for that characteristic in creating a hybrid that has a, a, a failed mechanism for producing the seed. And if you actually look at those things closely, you'll see that there are microscopic seeds there. They just don't fully develop. So they're not truly seedless. They're just seeds that don't fully develop. That's perfectly safe to eat. It's, it's perfectly natural. Uh, but I do want to caution you that they're doing work in genetic modification now to produce seedless varieties too through an entirely different process that negates the whole, uh, uh, the whole seed uh, production part of the plant's system. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.